0: From Smashing the Plateau, I'm David Schreiner-Khan with Going Solo. In this show, we discuss building your own successful business after a late career job loss.
1: It gave me so much mind space that I could solely focus on what I increasingly wanted to do as opposed to what only clients were asking from me.
0: Today on episode 32 of Going Solo, I'm speaking with Badwine Birch, Baudwein was born in the Netherlands and started his career in academia. Following a number of pivots, Bao eventually became an independent consultant. In our discussion, you'll hear how Bao used some key strategies to fill his practice with his ideal clients while increasing his revenue. Stay with us to hear all the details. If you're trying to build your own business after a late career job loss, and want to make more money faster with fewer mistakes along the way, sign up for a complimentary Going Solo action planning session now. Go to goingsoloplan.com. That's goingsoloplan.com. Now let's welcome Baudwine Birch. Baudwein was born in the Netherlands and he now lives in Brooklyn. He helps clients bring out the best in themselves and others and originated the direct path to inclusive leadership development. Bao facilitates leadership workshops for companies around the world. Bao, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, David, it's a pleasure to be on the
0: show. Bao, you've had a few transitions and pivots that have led you from employment to entrepreneurship. And I'd love to hear a little bit about that.
1: Yes, so I was born and raised in the Netherlands and and got my education there. And part of my education was then also in Japan. And when I returned from Japan after two years, I actually joined the university, so I was an assistant professor for quite a while. And then the university went through a few transitions, which was unimaginable uh, to me, because when you join a government organization in the Netherlands, you sort of feel guaranteed employment. And then all of a sudden, we went through a period of layoffs. And uh, for a while, my position was safe, but I started to set up a... Uh, private consulting company so i did some consulting on the side with permission from the university i went with part time resignation first so i kept for uh, working for 3 days and then was 2 days an individual consultant and then i decided to actually leave the university and i joined a uh, private investor company uh, through which i was still able to service some of my clients and then i had a fallout with the owner and I had to leave. And it was a difficult time because I was working in the United States uh, on an H-1B visa. I had just married uh, with Riva who is American and lives here in Brooklyn. And so all of a sudden I was unemployed on an H-1B visa that was tied to the employment. So now I needed to scramble and apply for a green card. And this was post 2001. And I found out that to be uh, eligible for a green card, I needed to stay for three months in the United States. I was not allowed to leave the United States. And I actually couldn't afford that because my clients were mainly in Europe at that time. So we had a real uh, dilemma uh, what to do. And Riva had become unemployed and was doing freelance work. So all of a sudden, our income was uh, very insecure. And then the phone rang. And this was the uh, executive education department from the university where I was—I used to be full-time employed. The executive education department had agreed to continue to work with me. So I worked on a contract basis. And it was kind of a miracle because as we were discussing this dilemma, they, they said, look, we have a client. Uh, you already work with that client, but they are not happy with our program manager. And they want you as a program manager. So if you agree to this, we will, of course, compensate you for the time and we'll give you a desk and, um, and you're welcome to, to work for that client here at the university. And so the other alternative through staying three months in the United States and not being able to earn any money uh, is to actually go to the Netherlands and then apply for a green card there. Uh, And that process actually took longer, but it was the best way uh, to do this. So uh, we did that. And since then, uh, I've basically been, you could say, unemployed. And then I realized only a few years later that, oh, yes, they call this entrepreneurship uh, here in the U.S.
0: (laughs) (laughs) What's it called in the Netherlands? Uh,
1: They call it uh, ZZPayer. It it means you're an independent contractor. But entrepreneurship is—I, yeah—I associate it much more with with the culture here in in the United States. I never looked at it that way until a few years later, because I grew up in the Netherlands. My father was a worked for the government, uh, retired from the government, and I had never really thought and seen myself as an independent contractor or an entrepreneur and building my own business. So it was a a foreign foreign uh, term for me for
0: a while. So, Bao, when you, when you realized that you actually were an entrepreneur, how did it feel?
1: It felt scary. You know, when I, re- I had to resign uh, from, uh, so I, I was not fired, but I, I decided to leave my employer. And it felt scary because we had um, no guaranteed income. Riva has type 1 diabetes, so we're dependent on, on medicine. And it was scary. And I realized that uh, well, the first thing I needed to do, and I was trained as a business economist, That's my was my basic study at the university, look at my business model. What amount of money is coming in? What is our burn rate on, on a monthly basis? And then you kind of read and they say, oh, you need to have six months in, um, in cash uh, as a buffer. And that didn't feel enough to me at all. Uh, I was raised in the Netherlands, which is a savings nation. And I said to Riva, I said, look, you know, as long as I can, uh, I have these clients and I can make an income. Let's save money, and and she agreed. So we started saving money, and it was really only a couple of years later when we had enough money to pay off uh, a small mortgage that we still had, uh, so we could pay that off in cash uh, after discussing this with our financial planner. And then when the financial crisis broke out in two thousand eight we had six years of our monthly burn rate on, in the bank. And we had, partly of that was in completely cash, and the rest was in 401ks, which of course you don't want to touch, and, and that was being managed by our financial planner. And when I realized that we had six years of, of monthly burn rate in cash, in various savings accounts, I started to relax. And we both relaxed, and, um, and we said, this is okay.
0: Yeah, and frankly, the amount of of savings that you had was probably way more than most entrepreneurs. Um, Certainly, it's more than many of the entrepreneurs that have been guests on my shows. And I I couldn't agree with you more that having having a financial buffer is um, a huge contributor to the relief of anxiety.
1: Yes, yeah, that's very much what I experienced, and also what started to happen as as we saw the savings accrue, we we started saying to each other, and we we made that a, an annual habit at the beginning of the year. What are you going to do to to educate to enrich yourself, and what am I going to do? And so one of the things that I've always done is is to continue to educate myself, go to conferences, do workshops, and and continue to educate. And we realized we had the money for that. So that was wonderful. But that came all from the confidence of seeing the balance of savings.
0: Right. So, Bao, what kind of results were you able to create, given the the fact that you had this feeling of a significant amount of financial freedom?
1: Well, it, it gave me so much mind space that I could solely focus on what I increasingly wanted to do as opposed to what only clients were asking from me. And one of the things I discovered was that when a client proposed something that didn't sit well, that I could do, but I no longer felt it was the right thing to do, that I uh, was able to have the conversation with them and say, if you want to do it this way, there are two other people whom I can refer this to, but here are the reasons why I'm not the right person for you. And I started to feeling very confident. And then I found out, to my amazement, that many clients said, oh, is that how you think about it? We never looked at it this way. Then, well, let's do it your way. And that was a discovery that I made time and again. And so internally, I began to change my narrative from, I am not the right person from you, to well i really want to work with clients uh, who are on the, who are want to be on the leading edge uh, with me and if you do not if you choose to not to work with me then that's fine but i'm looking now for for customers who want to be on the leading edge of the, the kind of work that i do so that was a major change in in how i felt and and that grew my confidence and then i Really, the, the kind of work I started doing with clients was high impact. Um, the nature completely changed after the financial crisis. It made me better and achieving great results for the clients.
0: Now, did your change in perspective and the way you ended up making your pitch with prospects, did that also impact the price point?
1: Yes, it actually did uh, change. I started working in in two different ways. Usually, I worked by the, the total number of days, so yeah, day rates. Uh, but I also started working with turnkey. So I would say to the client when their request came to me, I would you know have a dialogue about what is the what are the real issues here. And I said, well, there's two ways we can do this. It's this many days, or I will do this turnkey, and uh, it meant that um, my price went up. And then there was something else that happened uh, that, I, that I had absolutely no control over. But I do most of my work. Uh, I did most of my work in in Europe, and Europe had gone to the euro, and the euro had slid from about well one dollar eighteen to ninety cents, and then it went all the way up to one dollar and sixty cents. So it would happen month by month that I said to Riva because I was invoicing in in uh, euros, so I took the currency risk for my clients. I just got another raise. The euro went up in value. So there were, these two things were happening. I started to price differently. The quality of the work, the demand of the work was had a very different uh, nature. And so I was able to increase the price, yeah.
0: Wow, and how did this shift also impact what you specialized on, in terms of like the actual work itself? Yes, that's
1: actually a superb question, because what happened with the crisis is before the crisis, I did a lot of five-day, three-day, or two-day leadership workshops, and clients would book me a year in advance, and uh, that was fantastic. But these were kind of programs that you design, and then I had the leaders of the company in, in the classroom in a castle, usually a very nice resort, and we would do leadership development. And after the crisis then I realized that what clients needed was fast change. I mean it was the world became so insecure and so ambiguous and so dynamic that they needed to, to do things quick. So I started working with um, large groups, uh, sometimes 100, 60 or 400 people and I came up with innovative ways of designing and then I realized that what I was doing Was I was not just doing leadership development for the leaders, but I was including their direct reports. And then I realized that what I had been doing was actually odd. Because when you talk about leadership, you're talking about somebody who leads and somebody who follows. So you are in a relationship, you have leaders and followers. And then, of course, leadership is no longer hierarchical. Leadership is positional, it is hierarchical, but leadership is also a practice. So to cut the relationship and only take the leaders uh, for education is a little bit of an unnatural thing. So I started to promote uh, leadership events where we would work with the leaders and their direct reports. So working with in-tech teams and sometimes three or four teams in the room and bringing the actual work, the actual business challenges in the classroom so that we educate everybody with uh, new tools, uh, new concepts. Uh, But rather than only the leader having the tool, now the direct reports were privy to it. And so they could support each other. And so clients discovered that things would stick better. Behavior change, if that was part of it, would be much more sustainable. And I started to also promote and saying, look, you're handing off leadership development to me, and that's wonderful. And and I would work sometimes with, with colleagues, so we would have a faculty team. I said, but this is really a task that you have to do. So I started with formats of doing train-the-trainer and inviting and supporting executives to give their own leadership workshops. And that has been the most amazing transition and the most satisfying transition that I've made in in my work.
0: Wow. So how do you now define the the most common problem that you solve?
1: Uh, The most common problem that people deal with is that we now live in a world that is unpredictable, much more ambiguous, and they call it the VUCA fu- the world, right? Volatile, uh, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. And we have a, still a leadership cadre that is trained in the world of predictability and believing in cause and effect. And so, the world doesn't respond like a machine, like a cause and effect model. So the most common problem that I see is that people continue to analyze and analyze and delay decision-making because they think it's a predictable problem. Predictable problems you can actually analyze. Uh, But complex problems, you actually have to do something. You have to work with with emergence uh, rather than with uh, control and with imposing solutions. You have to work in a solution-focused way rather than with analysis and you have to work with synthesis and so my job has been over these past two decades to create simple tools and to uh, borrow tools that i find in the science and to make them easy and accessible and practical for executives and then what i mentioned before to actually train executives so that they now can train them uh, to their own people
0: and when you're working on on these kinds of problems, has there been any change in the length of your relationship with clients? Well, my
1: client relationships tend to be long. So with one of the major clients, I had a relationship for 16 years, which, which is an ex- exception. But I would say that it tends to be long. And then because they increasingly take over, uh, the nature of the engagements with me changes. So I do less interventions. I do more uh, executive coaching of teams, or they ask me to facilitate offsites.
0: Mm. What advice would you have to somebody who might be just starting out in a consulting business, um, following following many years of employment around how to build? a consulting practice that is solving longer-term problems rather than short-term interventions? Hmm.
1: Well, I think the first thing, if you go from being dependent on monthly income and all of a sudden you're dependent on, on unpredictable income, go back to basics, take a hard look at your business fundamentals. Uh, how's the money coming in and out? And how do you create a buffer? Uh, I think that is very, very important. And then the question that I received from my mentor uh, who was also the the chair of the department i worked for at the university is how do you know that you are on the leading edge of the field in which you operate why would clients want to work with you and so whatever the field of consulting is whether it's in finance in leadership development or in marketing or in sales how do you know that you are on the leading edge what are the long-term trends that you see coming? The impact of AI, for example. What are the long-term trends? What are the problems today? And how do you assure that that you are on the leading edge? And and that means that uh, you have to set some money aside to keep yourself abreast of these fast-moving knowledge markets. So how are you going to educate yourself in at the same time while doing consulting? And that's a, a, a juggling act that you have to be able to perform. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, yeah. No, it, it it makes perfect sense. That is certainly why, as a consultant, you would be really valuable to your clients. Yeah. So, yeah. Val, yeah. where do you see your, your business um, heading? How would you like things to evolve?
1: Well, I'd like to do this kind of work for a long, long time. Um, but what is organically hel- happening and what I love to do is to to help younger people to see what inclusive leadership development and inclusive leadership is and what it can do and enable them to uh, bring the message and the tools and the techniques into the world. Because underlying that view of inclusive leadership lies a very different worldview than the conventional uh, leadership paradigm uh, that we have. And I'd like to contribute to bringing that paradigm that, is increasingly coming more into focus in our societies, I'd like to contribute to bring that into the world. So I'm also now uh, writing a book and I'd like to teach the younger generation and that's happening organically. So that's, that's wonderful.
0: That sounds great. And Bao, if somebody wanted to go deeper with what you've shared today or learn more or access any resources that you have, where would they go?
1: Yeah, they can always go to LinkedIn. Um, they can send me a, a message there. They can also go to my website, uh, which is spimanagement.com. And that's S for Simon, P for Peter and I for Italy, spimanagement.com and use the contact page. And I haven't updated my website for a long time, but they at least they will get a glimpse of uh, what uh, who I am and, and um, what what I do.
0: Do you have a free gift for our audience?
1: Yes. um, I have two articles. One that I actually co-authored with uh, my wife, Riva, because I also work in healthcare, and that's where she does her work. And uh, one that I was actually an award-winning article uh, on uh, the leadership of change. And uh, people can get that from um, the website. And as a bonus, if there are people who would love to have a, uh, a coaching session, or as I call it, a thinking partner session with me, because I also am a, a certified coach, they can um, uh, apply uh, through the website. Sounds great. Well,
0: Bao, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to join us today on Going Solo and sharing some of your experiences, which have been really, really remarkable. I think really insightful for for people to hear. Thank you. My guest today has been Badwine Birch, the director of SPI Management. Thank you again, Bao, for joining us.
1: Thank you very much, David, for having me.
0: When you visit the Going Solo website at smashingtheplateau.com slash solo, you'll find a summary of each episode along with the links we mention on the show. Today we learned how to keep improving your product market fit while increasing your revenue and much more. If you're trying to build your own business after a late career job loss and want to make more money faster with fewer mistakes along the way, sign up for a complimentary Going Solo action planning session now. Go to goingsoloplan.com. That's goingsoloplan.com. Please share this episode with friends and colleagues to help them learn how to build a successful business after a late career job loss. Thank you for taking the time to listen to our show. I'll see you on our next episode.